my own uh, middle class, uh, first world standards, I had to deal with some pretty difficult things growing up. It's, uh, I'm not asking for your prayer necessarily, but let's just say I dealt with some difficult things according to those standards, not least of which was, at times, having to be babysit by my older brother and sister. If you've experienced this yourself, Sophia, you've probably had this, I'm sure, if you've experienced this yourself, you know how uh, unfair that can be, how unjust, really, that can come across. Many times, it's, it's exactly that way. Uh, uh, how it would typically work out in my family was uh, my parents would be headed off to some dinner, some uh, event in the evening, and they would lay out all the house rules, emergency contacts, uh, expectations that, that we, we would all be expected to agree to uphold, or at least appear to agree to uphold. And then they would head off for whatever event they were going to. And for the most part, it was pretty smooth sailing. I mean, we had the run of the house to ourselves, which was great. Uh, we usually had a fun meal of some kind, pizza, hot dogs, whatever. And usually TV or a movie or some kind was involved too, so it was a good time. And frankly, I mean, it, it, was, it was all fine. Everything would be just fine until that fateful moment when it was bedtime. And then all of a sudden, I don't know how they did it, but just very imperceptibly, my sister or my brother would just slip off their sibling hat and put on their prison warden hat and remind me that, oh, okay, so now bedtime is time to return to your cell or your bed, whatever it is. Time for bed. And every time that happened, every time they would do that, I would just, I would be thinking to myself, why? Why Why did you have to do that? Why did you have to go there? Everything was just fine up until now. Just had your sibling hat on, and now you have to go and wreck everything by putting on your master of the universe hat. I mean, okay. I mean, clearly I've moved on beyond that. It's not upsetting to me anymore. But at the time, it was difficult for me to work through. I've, I've moved beyond this now. Here's why I tell you that. We're, we're continuing on in this series that we've begun three weeks ago now, our Advent series entitled Isaiah's Jesus. We've been looking at the picture that Isaiah gives us in Isaiah 9-6 of the coming rescuer, the coming Messiah that was promised to be sent all the way back in Genesis 3:15 when sin entered into the world and fractured the relationship between God and humanity. And as I've said each week, although Isaiah gives us all kinds of pictures of Jesus throughout his prophecy, the one that he gives us particularly in Isaiah 9-6 focuses around his coming. What would it look like when Jesus comes? So we read these words in Isaiah 9-6. He says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, so far, we've looked at Jesus as that child, that son. And then last week, we looked at him as the wonderful counselor. And if you were here for those two messages, you know that both of those two descriptions that Isaiah gives of Jesus focused specifically around his full and true humanity, his coming as a true, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, remember we said, and he had to do that because he had to truly die for our sins, to demonstrate God's plan to restore and, and recreate all humanity that was broken and damaged by sin. And as we saw last week, in order to be able to truly identify with us, to be a faithful and merciful, sympathetic high priest, because he now experienced all the same difficulties, temptations, struggles that we do firsthand. 
But today, we're going to see Isaiah now transitions a bit to begin to focus less on Jesus' humanity and now more on his divinity, giving us this description of Jesus now as the mighty God. The mighty God. Now, we've said from the beginning of this whole series that the Bible presents Jesus as both. He is both fully God and fully man, both at the same time. Two natures existing, albeit mysteriously, at the same time in one person. But what I'd like to submit to you this morning is that once we've come to accept that reality, even though it's still hard for us to ever kind of get our minds wrapped around it, once we've come to accept that between the two, between God and human, we are much more comfortable with Jesus' humanity dealing with this part of him than we are with his divinity. We're much more comfortable with him over here in his humanity, and I think that's pretty much true across the board, whether you're a Christian or not. You uh, head home to wherever you are going this Christmas, having a Christmas dinner, I I promise you, uh, in North America anyway, you bring up Jesus, and most people actually be quite comfortable talking about, I'm a baby born in Bethlehem, uh, if shepherds come and sit around him, uh, comfortable talking about Jesus, a, a wise first century rabbi. Jesus, a, a great moral teacher, the likes of Gandhi, Martin Luther King. Uh, everyone's happy with that, but I tell you what, you start talking about Jesus risen bodily again on the third day after being crucified. Start talking about Jesus as truly God in the flesh who's come to earth and, and all the all the resulting authority that he has now over creation as well as us. And I'll tell you what, people are going to want to change this subject real quick. We're not comfortable with that. And I think, honestly, that last piece, that's, that's actually really where the problem arises. Not necessarily even talking about Jesus as divine, but talking about the implications of his divinity. The, the, the obedience that would need to come if Jesus is truly God. Because now, very much like I felt when all of a sudden my brother or sister was saying, hey, it's bedtime, all of a sudden now it feels like Jesus is changing hats on us. It feels like he's changing hats, and we, we don't really like this divine hat that he's putting on now because all of a sudden we don't have freedom to just kind of pick and choose which parts about Jesus, what he says that we like, and which ones we don't. As a human, as Jesus, as a true human, uh, uh, we can admire and respect Jesus, we can respect uh, the things he said and and think of his death as an ultimate example of self-giving love. We can admire that and love that. But if he's God, all of a sudden just admiring the things that he said isn't sufficient anymore. Now we have to obey everything he said and commanded. He's God. We don't like that very much. That leads a lot of us to think in the same way, why'd you have to do that? Jesus, why, why couldn't you just stay this you know, great teacher in history, this, this great man in history that we could just respect and honor? Why did you have to wreck everything by putting on your God of the universe hat? And of course, the problem is that Jesus isn't switching hats at all. He, he wears both those hats, and he wears them both at the same time, and he's worn them continuously since his incarnation 2,000 years ago. And once you understand why it's so important that Jesus is both of those things, well then, well really, you want him to be both. We need him to be both. So let's let's follow Isaiah here now as he just transitions, really just from looking at one aspect, one part of Jesus' nature to his other, to his divine nature, as we look at this third description of Jesus as the mighty God. 
And we'll do that by looking through this passage in Colossians in three ways. I want to show you Jesus as the creator God, Jesus as the eternal God, and then finally Jesus is the reconciling God. The creator God, the eternal God, and the reconciling God. But actually, I think that the thing that Paul wanted so much to show us through those things was not simply that that Jesus was just God, but that as God, he has supremacy over all those things. Jesus has supremacy over his creation. He has supremacy over time, and he has supremacy over death. We see that at the end of verse 18, if you look there. So that in everything, Paul says, he might have the supremacy. So, if you close your Bibles, please open them up again. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. Let's, let's dig into this together and focus now on this third description, Jesus as the mighty God. Let's look first of all at Jesus as the creator God. Jesus as the creator God. Now, whether you knew it or not, some of you have said you definitely know it, we've been looking at some pretty advanced theology actually over these past few weeks as we've been talking about Jesus as fully God and fully man. I mean, there's no question, uh, even trying to understand how Jesus can be both those things at once is just boggling to our minds, and it's something that even the brightest theological minds in history have found it impossible to really get their heads around. As we've also said, neither has that stopped people in history from still trying to figure it out. They've still tried to find ways to say, well, no, 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 this is what it is, this is how it works. Uh, As it related to Jesus' humanity, remember we looked at those two theories. One was docetism, which basically saw Jesus as truly divine but not truly human. This was Superman Jesus, okay, who, who appears to suffer, appears to die, but doesn't actually do those things. And we looked at Eutychianism or monophysticism, which basically just saw no division at all between Jesus' divine and human natures at all. He, he, he's not really actually both. He's, he's not really both. He's, he's just a mix. And so he doesn't actually truly God or truly man. He's just some kind of a mix, which we call cosmic blender approach to the humanity of Jesus. Well, when it comes to focusing now on Jesus' divine nature, there's a whole new group of people who try to come up with theories as how it is that Jesus can be both truly man and God. One of the most well-known and notable came in the third century from a man named Arius, from which we got the false teaching about Jesus called Arianism. Now, the basic premise of this teaching was that Jesus was truly man. He was fully man, but he wasn't fully God. So, what you had here was uh, just an understanding of of, of now we've we've just tilted the the balance the other way. We've said, okay, no, no, he is truly man, but he's not fully God. And actually, Arius used the first verse in our passage here, among many others, to, to justify that teaching. Look at verse 15 with me here, and I think you'll see maybe where he kind of got off track with this. Paul says here, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, the word over that we have in the NIV translation here, if you're using the Brown Pew Bible, is, is theologically correct, but in the Greek, the word is actually of. Of. So this verse would read, He is the firstborn of all creation. So you could see how Arius would read that. He's trying to understand how Jesus can be both fully man and God. And he says, Okay, <laughs> I get it now. Yeah, Jesus is he's a guy. He, he, was, he, he was born, he started, but he wasn't. Fully God, I get it. He, he was created by God, 
So that's why he, he's just the firstborn. He's the first of God's creations. That's, that's what Paul's teaching us here. This leads Arius to his famous statement where he says, there was a time when the sun was not. There was a time when the sun was not. Now the first big problem with that is a misunderstanding actually of what Paul means by firstborn. What does Paul mean by firstborn? In this context, he's not referring specifically to birth order necessarily, but he's talking about the position of priority and preeminence that the firstborn son would have in ancient Near Eastern context. So he's saying, uh, like we saw with Jacob a few weeks ago, the firstborn son had the rights of the family. He had the future blessing would be given to him. All the inheritance of the father would be his. So what Paul is really saying in this passage is that Jesus is not simply the first and best of God's creation. He is supreme over all of God's creation. Hence the NIV translation, he is the firstborn over all creation. It's the same is true in verse 18, where it talks about Jesus as the firstborn from among the dead. It's talking about his supremacy, his preeminence over these things. The second problem is that it's just as though Arius just forgot to keep reading. It's as though he read verse 15 and then just stopped. Because what we see very clearly in the very next verse, look at verse 16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So you see the problem there? I mean, if Jesus is the one by whom and for whom all things were created, and he goes to quite an a, a extreme here to say, how he's talking all things, if he's the one by whom and for whom all things were made, it follows he cannot himself be created because he's the one through whom all things were created. And this is also actually what the writers of the Nicene Creed, which we sometimes read in our service, that's what they thought as well as they were responding to Arius in writing the Nicene Creed in 325 AD when they write this of Jesus. He is, they said, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Interesting little sidebar that has to do with Christmas. Uh, when it came to that council that put together the Nicene Creed, 325 AD, as Arius was presenting this teaching uh, to be uh, vetted by this council, one council member was so enraged by what he was hearing, this false understanding of Jesus that he wasn't truly God, he actually got up and walked over and slapped Arius in the face. You know who that was? The council member known as St. Nicholas. So you know if Santa Claus is slapping you in the face, you are wrong about something. I just find that hilarious to think of that. But anyway, it's a different, it was a different day. It doesn't happen that way today. But anyway, as you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus' supremacy over all that was created by him and for him all over the place. In his earthly ministry, Jesus is he's healing sickness. He's raising people from the dead. He's, he's casting out demons. He's rebuking storms, and they listen to him. Jesus shows time and time again he is truly the creator God. So that when we read in Genesis 1.26, the Trinitarian God saying, let us make man in our image, Jesus was part of that conversation. And he was also the agent then by whom God created all things in the earth, including you and I. What that means for you and I today, Jesus as the resurrected Son of God, still living today, He is still 
sovereign over all that he's created. He is still supreme over his creation, over all these things, which means, first of all, he's in control of anything and everything that could come against you. All the things we fear in life, he is supreme and sovereign over those things. Uh, Natural disasters, physical illness, emotional stress, the starter in your car or your very next breath, he is supreme and sovereign over those things, which means however frightened or out of control we may feel, that doesn't mean that Jesus is out of control and that he's afraid. He is still the creator God, sovereign and supreme over those things. That doesn't mean they're not afraid, that they don't make us afraid. It doesn't mean they don't hurt. Or even that they sometimes take our lives. It doesn't mean that. But it means he's in control of those things. John Piper once said uh, this, when Jesus asked his disciples why they were so afraid after he'd calmed the storm and the boat that they were in out on the lake, he says it wasn't because Christians don't drown. It's because with Jesus, they were safe in drowning. They didn't need to be afraid. But that also means if he's the creator God, he is also sovereign and supreme over you and over me. Which actually is very different. It's very contrary to the very loud and loud voices that we hear all around us today. That we are not the sovereigns of ourselves. That's a very different message than you hear today's world. It means we we are not the sovereigns over what we put into our bodies. We're not the sovereigns over who we sleep with. We're not the sovereigns over our gender, nor are we the sovereigns over when we die. The one who made us is. He's the one who is sovereign over those things. And we would do well to remember that, to remind ourselves often of that truth that when it comes to our physical bodies, as well as everything in this created earth, we are not sovereign to just do whatever we want with it. We're only stewards. We're stewards of what he is sovereign and supreme over, and really, when we forget that or we ignore that, you could say that we are guilty of copyright infringement on our cosmic scale. So that's Jesus as our creator God, supreme and sovereign over all that he's created. Next, let's look at how Jesus is the eternal God. He is the eternal God. Look at verse 17 with me. Paul says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, to describe Jesus as before all things, I think, first of all, he's just reiterating what he just said about Jesus' supremacy and preeminence over his creation. In fact, in verse 18, when Paul refers to Jesus as the beginning, that's a word in Greek, arche, which means an agent that is the cause of something that does not itself have a cause. So he's saying Jesus is really, he's the first cause. But beyond that, I think by saying Jesus is before all things, Paul is simply referring to Jesus' predating of all those things that he's created. He's before them, which is really describing Jesus as eternal. He is the eternal God. And in his earthly ministry, you see Jesus saying things about him like this all the time, actually. For instance, in John chapter 8, Jesus is having an argument with some of the religious leaders of the day. They they want to reject him and what he's teaching uh, and basically just say, we are accepted by God. We are fully accepted by him just on the basis of the fact that we're Abraham's descendants. We're Jews. We're God's people. Clearly, we're accepted by God. And so they say this to Jesus. They say, well, are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus says to them in reply, 
your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. They say, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. And maybe that doesn't sound like very much to us. We're like, oh, what? What do you... Before Abel, you what? It sounds crazy to us, but I tell you what, the religious leaders knew exactly what he was saying. They knew that Jesus was saying, first of all, he's eternal. He was there when Abraham was there, however many hundred years ago that was. And also in taking the divine name, I am, he was claiming to be equal with God, which is why they picked up stones and wanted to stone him. And in John's glorious picture of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, we see there Jesus doesn't just predate human history, he also post dates it. Jesus says there, as he reveals himself to John, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I am the Alpha and Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the Jesus who came at Christmas. As we think about Jesus now as eternal God, who is also supreme over time, let's take a second now just to consider what that means as it relates to our schedules and our calendars, which we like to hold very close and tight to ourselves. As fully man, first of all, let's just say Jesus knows what it's like to wait. He knows what it means to have to be patient and to wait. Just consider alone the sovereign creator God of the universe having to endure 40 weeks of gestation in Mary's womb, just sitting there, just waiting for things to come. Just like, okay, well, now i got to wait for the lungs to develop. Yep, he, He's patient. He, he's experienced waiting. He knows what that's like. And yet, as fully God, that means Jesus is sovereign and supreme over time. That he orders everything. And everything happens just when he wants it to happen, exactly as he wants it to happen, which should lead us at least, I'm saying at least, lead us to, to doubt our doubts. To doubt our doubts when we begin to wonder why Jesus is taking so long to answer the prayers that we're giving to him. We feel like he's forgotten us. We feel like he's abandoned us. We feel like he doesn't love us anymore. It should lead us to doubt those doubts because he's sovereign over time. He knows exactly when things need to happen. It should lead us to say, as Peter does in 2 Peter, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some count slowness. He's being patient with you not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Or James 4, where he says, Listen, you who say today or tomorrow will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what tomorrow will bring. After his epic, stunning rebuke from God that Job experienced when God was saying to him, Sorry, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job says this to God, I know you can do all things and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Or even David, who writes in Psalm 139, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Don't you see? We can always trust in Jesus' timing. 
Even when it looks chaotic and out of control to us, we can trust in his timing because as the eternal God, he is not just the God of ages past. He's the God who knows and who has written each one of our tomorrows. He's the eternal God. Which means that to try to put your hope anywhere else is actually just willful blindness. I mean, literally, to say to the one who's like, actually, I know what's going to happen every day now until the end of your life, and be like, no, 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 I think I want to figure this out on my own. Really? He knows because he's written each day. We can trust in his timing. He hasn't forgotten us, he hasn't let us down. We looked at now how Jesus is the creator of God and now as the eternal God. Let's look lastly, Jesus as the reconciling God. He is the reconciling God. The last two verses of our passage here in verses 19 and 20 say this. Look with me there. For God was pleased, says Paul, to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, two things quickly about verse 19 there. First of all, what Paul is saying in that verse is nothing less than a declaration of Jesus' full, complete divinity. He says, all the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus. That means Jesus wasn't a little bit God. He wasn't mostly God. He wasn't just displaying God-like qualities as Arius taught. He was the fullness of God in bodily form, which means that Jesus, the Son of God, was as much God as the Father is God, as the Spirit is God. He was fully God. Second thing that means is that when God says he was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, do you know what that also means? That means that in sending Jesus, God was sending his very self to us. All of his fullness dwelt in him. It means that in offering Jesus as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, Jesus is God's offering of absolutely everything he has to give. He held nothing back in redeeming us. He offered us all of himself in sending Jesus. Which leads us perfectly into what we saw then in verse 20 where Paul tells us the reason that Jesus was sent, which was to bring about reconciliation through his blood shed on the cross. Now the whole idea of reconciliation, that term, that presupposes that there's a pre-existent relationship that's broken and needs to be restored, needs to be reconciled, right? What I'd like to suggest is that that pre-existent relationship that was severed was the relationship between humanity and God all the way back in the Garden of Eden. When mankind sinned and brought sin into the world, God confronted Adam and Eve about that sin, and because he's a holy and just God, he had to send them out of his presence. He had to send them out of the garden. But because he's also a a loving and gracious God, not before making them a promise, a promise that he was going to send someone someday, a rescuer, the seed of the woman, who would crush the serpent's head, break the power of sin and death that had shattered and severed humanity's relationship with God. He was sending someone to be a reconciler. And now here we have Jesus. Sent 2,000 years ago, the fullness of God come as a baby, growing into a man and then taking the sins of the world upon himself. Breaking down that wall that was separated us from God. Jesus is 
that rescuer that God promised all the way back in Genesis. He is that seed of the woman. Jesus is the reconciling God. As fully man, able to be sacrificed for sins, as fully God, our perfect and spotless sacrifice, fully sufficient to cover the sins of the world, as well as to rise again from death, showing his victory and supremacy over death. And in doing so, reconciling to himself all things, including you and me. As we move from Isaiah's description of Jesus as the child and son, Jesus as the wonderful counselor, to Jesus as mighty God, I hope you see now that although Isaiah's emphasis may have shifted, at no time has Jesus switched hats on us. He hasn't switched hats at all. He wears both of them at the same time. Also, at no point has Jesus done some kind of a cosmic bait and switch with us where he's come as this cute little baby and then he's grown into this wonderful loving man who, who heals people and holds babies on his lap and just makes everybody love him. And then just one day just rips back his robe and he's got a God of the universe badge and he's like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Sorry to have to show you that, but uh, the truth is I'm also God. So now that you've got the cuffs on, there's going to be some rules that I'm going to have to lay out for you now. And actually, you've been doing pretty bad at them, so we've got a lot of work to do. That's, that's not what Jesus is doing. He's been both from the time he came, and he continues to be both fully man, fully God. In fact, if you read the book of Revelation, you see how Jesus is going to show up the next time he comes, ripping open the skies, charging down to earth with all the hosts of heaven, all tattooed up. He's got King of Kings and Lord of Lords written on his thigh, sword coming out of his mouth, flames in his eyes. That's a very different way of coming, right? And as, as the mighty God, he could have absolutely come that way the first time. But you see, God knew as well there was a price that needed to be paid. For justice to be paid and to win his prize, it couldn't be taken by force. It needed to be paid by sacrifice. That's precisely because of that, that what we celebrate every Christmas is not the mighty God come with all the glory and majesty of heaven, but Jesus, the mighty God of the universe, born to an unwed teenage mother. Jesus, the mighty God of the universe, his birth announced to nobody but some nobody shepherds out in the field. Jesus, the mighty God, laid to sleep in a trough that animals eat out of. What we celebrate at Christmas is exactly what Paul says in Philippians 2. Being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the mighty God. He's the creator God, the eternal God, the reconciling God, and as such, he's truly worthy of all of our, our praise and our worship, as well as our full allegiance and obedience, and yet... The hopeful message of Christmas is that the Word, the mighty God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, We have seen His glory, glory as of only Son from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, that fullness that God was pleased to have dwell in Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace. And it's only because of that grace that now, although we do seek to obey all that Jesus has commanded as the mighty God, we do, know, we do so no longer in some sort of a hopeless, vain attempt to, to earn his love, to earn his acceptance. We do it only as a response to the love that we already have. Perfect, complete obedience before God accomplished for us already in the death and resurrection of our reconciling God, Jesus Christ. What a Savior.